A lot of you know that I've been spending some time down in Mexico City and some other cities down there. I've been um, going, and my book came out in Spanish last April. I spoke to a couple hundred pastors last April and May, and I went back down there uh, about three weeks ago and spoke to another couple hundred pastors. I never dreamed I'd have an opportunity to impact so much of Mexico through pastors. They go back to their churches. They love hearing about how to connect the dots back to the Jewish roots of their faith. And I start off every message singing that prayer from Numbers chapter 6 to them. I want to do that to you. Would you stand up for just one more moment? And I would like to say that blessing over you in Hebrew and in English. If you just put your hands out, there's some anointing in this. I just, I just sense it. Ivarechacha. Adonai ve'ishmerecha, may the Lord bless you and protect you. Isa Adonai panavalecha ve'chunecha, may the Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. Isa Adonai panavalecha ve'salem shalom, may the Lord give you his personality. That's what it means to lift his countenance to you. Actually impart his personality in you and give you his perfect peace, his shalom. God bless you. Sit down. So um, we finished up our Upside Down Kingdom series a couple weeks ago. And a special thanks to so many of you who told us how timely that series was in light of everything going on in the world today. It's easy to have a worldly response to the current issues taking place today. But as followers of Yeshua, our response should typically be the antithesis of how the world responds to them. In all situations, our response should be seasoned with kindness and love and sacrifice. But sadly, so many Christ followers today are caught up in that polarizing, demonizing rhetoric that's so pervasive in our culture today. And falsely believe that winning the battle for their theological, ideological, and cultural positions is more important than winning the battle for human souls. And so we're doing our best here at Cornerstone to ensure that we continue to live our lives more and more each day like Jesus lived his life, loving and sacrificing for the sake of others, even to the point of death. Rather than how the world lives, fighting more and more each day for entitlement and self-preservation. Next week, we're going to start a nine-week series on Cornerstone's elements, the values that have made this church so endearing and so unique. And so the gap in the gap between those two longer series, Brian and I are doing a short message series on the theme of new found in the Bible. We're only doing two messages. We could have done probably 20. Last week, Brian talked about how we can best navigate through the twists and turns and struggles of life by being born again and again and again with new life. Remember that? And today, I'm talking about something I call the theology of sitting together, which is the posture we will have for all eternity once Messiah Jesus returns to make everything new. So everyone loves brand new things. Don't you like brand new things? Of course. We like the feel and look of a new pair of jeans or a a new haircut, the smell of a new car or a new home, a new phone, a new friend. New things are awesome. 
But everything in this world is subject to decay. And so what's new today becomes old and worn out tomorrow. Our cars and homes break down and constantly need repair. Our clothes rip, our fabric wears out, our phones slow up, our screens crack, our friends get mad at us, or they move away, our hair won't stop growing well, or as I like to say, hair today, gone tomorrow. But one day God is going to recreate a brand new world that will not be subject to decay and will preserve its brand new smell and feel forever. It's called New Jerusalem. And in the Bible, we can read about this brand new city. In Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5, it's just one section where we can read about it. Here's what it says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea, a metaphor for evil in the Bible, by the way. The serpent comes out of the sea. It's not, God's not against waves crashing on to, you know, and surfing and stuff like that. All right. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Who's that? The church. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Wow. Have you had some tears in this life? No more tears. There'll be no more death. No reason to mourn or grieve no crying or pain. Why? For the old order of things is gone forever. <laughs> I don't know why that got me choked up. <sighs> I'm ready. And so this is going to be a very special place to live where there'll be none of that. No pain, no suffering, no tears, no struggles that we face, no more death or the grief that we experience from our losses in life. It's going to be an amazing place to live in our forever home. I love it when I get caught off guard like that. <laughs> Actually, I don't, because i got to do that in front of all of you. But I want to focus on something. It's the next verse. The next verse in this sentence, verse 5, says... He, meaning God, who was seated on the throne, said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. In other words, this is going to be a place and an experience unlike anything or anyone has ever known previously in the world. Everything bad goes away in the next life. Why? Because he who is seated on the throne is going to make everything brand spanking new. The throne in this passage is the throne that God sits on as the sovereign king over everything. God's throne is a place of ultimate power in authority, which means that if God says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. You can take it to the bank. 
But I want to share with you today something very specific about sitting on God's throne that should blow your minds. I hope it does, okay? Um, and should also give you great encouragement, not only about how awesome it's going to be living in eternity, but how we can uniquely live our lives right now because of this insight, how we should be living our lives because of this insight. And to lay a foundation, I want to, I want to start first. I want to read Psalm 133 to you. Here's how it goes. A song of ascents of David. So David wrote this, King David. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. And here's what it's like. It's like the precious oil poured on the head of uh, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard. Aaron is the one that, that God gave that blessing to in number six. He was the first high priest. Down the color of it. So it's just a, an overwhelming amount of oil just flowing down. What else is flowing down? It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. For there, the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Psalm 133 is what we call one of the songs of ascent, a small group grouping of psalms that were sung by Jewish pilgrims as they made their way to Jerusalem during the three mandatory pilgrimages commanded by God, which are Passover, that's the first one, Shavuot, you know it in your Bibles as, the, as Pentecost, it's the Feast of Weeks, and the third one is the Feast of Booths, which is coming up in just a couple weeks. They're called Songs of Ascent, because no matter what direction you journey to Jerusalem, you're going to start climbing in elevation in that final leg before arriving to the holy city. Those of you that have been with me on my trip to Israel, you know that you, you've done that. We, we make that ascent in a, in a bus, and we sing that song that I played, cheesy song that we sang a couple months ago in a message I gave. Jerusalem. Remember it? Okay. I won't. I won't go there. And so as Jews traveled to Jerusalem during these three pilgrimages, one of the psalms that they would sing is Psalm 133. And it would remind them of the incredible blessing that awaited them if they were able to dwell or live together in unity. Now, why did they need to be reminded of this? Because these Jewish pilgrims were coming from many different regions of the world and so they, they brought different cultures, they spoke different languages, in some cases they had different theological, political, and cultural agendas. Remember in Acts 2 during the Feast of Pentecost, Shavuot, right? That's the second annual pilgrimage. It says in Acts chapter 2, 5 through 6, that now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment. Remember the tongues of fire, and they began to speak in, in all these different languages. Um, they were amazed because each one heard their own language being spoken. So this is it's a really diverse group of people, which meant it could be very challenging to get everyone to play nicely together at times in the holy city. Just like it's often a challenge to get followers of Jesus to play nicely today in our highly charged, politicized environment. 
And so as they sang this song together, they would be reminded of the incredible blessing that would come if they would simply dwell or live together in unity. Amen? Well, you would think so. Except there's one problem with this. And the problem is that the phrase dwell or live together in unity is simply not found in this Hebrew text. In fact, the word unity is nowhere to be found in the Hebrew Scriptures. You won't find it. It shows up a couple times in the New Testament. So, let's just close in prayer and grab some lunch, shall we? All right, here are the actual words in Hebrew. Hine matov uma naim shevet achim in the Jewish world, there are several versions of songs with these words, but probably the most popular version goes like this. I'll sing this one to you. Sing with me. And the most literal translation of these words is this. Behold, like heads up, this is really important. How good and pleasing it is to who, by the way? To God. When brothers and sisters sit together. That's literally what it says. When we sit together. And so the word unity is just not here in this sense. But there's quite a bit that we can discern from the scriptures of what it means to sit together. And when I say sit together, sometimes it means literally sitting together. Probably not like this. Because you're just all facing forward. There's not much community going on here. But more often it's a metaphor for a special way to relate to each other. Which all of these Jewish pilgrims from every nation under heaven are reminding themselves of as they sing Psalm 133 together while making their ascent to Jerusalem. And it's important to understand that these annual pilgrimage to ascend to Jerusalem were intended to be a foreshadow of what it'll eventually be like when God establishes his eternal kingdom called New Jerusalem. And these pilgrimages were like a dress rehearsal of what to expect when we will finally come home to Jerusalem. You know that's your final address, right? New Jerusalem. It's going to look a lot different than it does right now. There won't be that tension that you read in the headlines. But there, we will be sitting together, and it will be a really, really big deal. Do you remember what God is doing in Revelation 21 when he says, Behold, I am making everything new? What's he doing? He's sitting on his throne. Those of you who are old enough to remember, here, help me sing this oldie praise song, okay? Give me some help. I see the Lord 
seated on the throne. And the train of his robe fills the temple with glory. And the whole earth is full. And the whole earth is full. And the whole earth is full of his glory. That song is based on Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. When the prophet Isaiah gets a little sneak peek into heaven, just like in the book of Revelation, the apostle John got a little sneak peek into heaven. In both cases, God is sitting on his throne. Sitting on a throne is a symbol of God's sovereign power and authority. Psalm 47, 8 says it this way, God reigns over the nation. God is seated on his holy throne. And so first and foremost, sitting is a symbol of power and authority. Today, we use the word sitting or seated in the same way to say that Joseph Robinette, did you know that's his middle name? Biden Jr. is the current seated president of the United States, which means he holds all the power and authority of that office. That's how that word's used. We also know that in ancient times, the elders in Jewish cities sat together at the city gates. And what were they doing at the city gates? Exercising their power and authority to make rulings on matters of law, allowing or denying someone entrance into that city, and having provocative yet civil discussions on current topics. It was an ideal place. Through the centuries and even today, many churches are governed by an elder board who share the power and authority to make decisions, regulate the criteria of, of what it means to be a member of the church, to hold discussions. They hold discussions about current issues and visionaries, hold provocative yet civil conversations about all that stuff. And a church elder board is intended to be a place of honor and value and mutual respect as they work as a team to make the church a safe and dynamic community. And having this kind of shared power and authority is the root of what it means to sit together. Shared power and authority. Are you with me so far? Okay, we're going on a little journey, and trust me, I'm taking you where no one's gone before. I'm serious. <clears throat> there is nothing on the theology of sitting together. But hopefully you'll see that I've done my homework, and it's actually a solid biblical concept. Most of you already know this stuff. You've just not had anyone put it all together in a theology before. And so with this shared power and authority in mind, I want to ask you a question about Jesus, okay? Where is Jesus located today, and what is his posture at that location? He is. Forty days after Jesus resurrected from the dead, he ascended back into heaven. And Mark 16, 19 tells us, after the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven, and he sat where? At the right 
hand of God. And so now we have Jesus in eternity, and he's sitting. And where is he sitting? At the right hand of God, which means he's sitting together with God on the throne. Which also means that God and Jesus now have a shared power and authority. And this is why Jesus said in John 10.30, I and my Father are one. And he mentions it again in John 17. Okay, you still with me? Okay, let me lose you now. Okay. Here's another question for you. Where will we be and what will be our posture when we finally are in eternity? Well, listen to what Jesus says about this. This is Revelation chapter 3, verse 21. To the one who is victorious, and I'm assuming that's going to be everybody in this room, everybody who follows Jesus. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Oh. So wait just a holy, eternal second here. (laughs) This is a little tricky to count, but how many different thrones are there going to be in New Jerusalem? And if you do a study of this, it looks like there'll only be one throne that is sometimes called God's throne. Sometimes it's called Jesus' throne. And I'm guessing that eventually it'll be called our throne as well. It's kind of like... You know, when you have kids that still live at home and they invite their friends to hang out. Hey, come and hang out at my house. But it's not really their house. (laughs) The heavenly throne will be a place where power and authority is shared by God and Jesus and all the elect. And that doesn't mean that there will no longer be role distinctions. God will always be the highest sovereign power and authority. Jesus' atonement, remember he still has the holes in his hands in eternity. Jesus' atonement will always be the only power that grants us eternal life. And we will always be the grateful beneficiaries of that grace. That never changes. And frequently, we will fall down on our faces to worship the king. But sitting together, we will assemble like the elders who sat at the city gates to create a safe and dynamic heavenly experience where everyone is honored and valued and respected. A place where collaboration is invited. We're going to collaborate with God. Where no one is shamed for challenging the status quo. Where change is possible, expected, and even desired. And this will happen because we will be sitting together on the throne. God, Jesus, and all of us enjoying shared power and authority. Now, I'm not going to ask you a third time, are you with me? Because I suspect that some of you are skeptical about this eternal collaboration community. 
especially since you've probably never heard anyone teaching on this subject. And you might be thinking to yourself, Gene, well, we see a lot of examples in the Bible where people change their position or their point of view in light of something God or Jesus does in their life. But where do we see even one example where God or Jesus changes their position or point of view in light of something that a human being does in their life? Well, the answer to that is there are a lot of examples in the Bible. Let me just give you three of them. And let me present them in a way that they might be discussed when God makes everything new in New Jerusalem and has us all sitting together on the throne, okay? Some possible discussions we might have. The first example is when Moses and God are talking on Mount Sinai. The story is in Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 through 14. And I imagine Moses saying, hey, God... Remember that time that we were up on Mount Sinai and we were up there maybe a little too long and the Israelites were worried that something had happened to us and so somehow they convinced Aaron into making a golden calf to worship and you just were livid. Yeah, I remember that, man. I was really ticked. You were. In fact, you wanted to wipe them out. And remember what I said? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I told you, look, you can't do this. you got a reputation. You have a reputation to uphold. The Egyptians are going to say, well, you just brought the Israelites into the desert to wipe them out. And besides, you made a covenant with Abraham and all the children. You can't just wipe them out. Yeah, I remember that. I'm so glad that you reminded me of that. Where were you just before the flood? Yeah, you could have used me then. Okay. The second example is Jesus and his mom at the wedding in Cana. The story is found in John chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. And maybe Mary says to Jesus, remember that time we were at that wedding in Cana? That was such a beautiful wedding. And and it's toward the end of the week. It's a week-long wedding ceremony. And they ran out of wine. And I told you about it, and, and you said to me, woman, why do you involve me? It's not my time yet. You were so about yourself. <laughs> I didn't even say anything. I just said, do whatever he says. And, of course, he ended up obeying his mama. The third story is when a Canaanite woman, so she's a pagan. She's not Jewish. She's a pagan. She asks, comes to God comes to Jesus and asks Jesus to heal her daughter. That story is found in Matthew chapter 15, verse 25 through 27. And she comes, she says, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed. Will you please heal her? Jesus, do you remember what you did? Yeah, I didn't say anything. No, you didn't. So I went to your disciples and I began to tell them, you got to convince them to do something. And so your disciples go to you, and they say, hey, this woman's driving us crazy. Send her away. She just keeps crying out after us. Do you remember what you told the disciples? Yeah, I, I said, I'm only sent for the lost sheep of Israel. And she heard you, and she came, and she said, she said, 
Lord, help me. And you said to me, is it not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs? And I said, no, it's not right. But even the dogs sit under the table and eat the crumbs that fall off the table. And I remember the look on your face. You went, oh, my God. I've never seen such faith. Okay, I'm going to heal your daughter. Did these events change God's or Jesus' position? Did they happen or did they not happen in the Bible? They did. Now, I know we, we like to fix it. So maybe it sounds like they didn't. But they did. The word in Hebrew, when God changes his mind or repents or relents, is nachem. And it really means to sigh, like, oh, my gosh. Like to be emotionally connected to just what happened. We just changed our form of government here at Cornerstone from an elder board that was made up entirely of men. It's very obvious when we all assembled up here, right? To a council that now includes women. And I'm super excited about this change because when we all get to New Jerusalem, God's leadership throne will include everyone sitting together. But one thing I'm proud of here at Cornerstone is that in all the years our elders have been sitting together to lead this church, our bylaws have included a provision to take a majority vote should our leaders become unable to reach a consensus on an issue. In all my 27 years here that I've been at Cornerstone, we have never, ever taken a majority vote to settle an issue. Never, not once. Oh, it's not that, that we, we haven't been divided on issues, because we have. Including the issue of having women on our highest leadership team. But we've never taken a majority vote to push something through because if we can't come to a consensus, then we always just conclude that it's not time to make the decision. It's time to wait and to have more discussions until the Lord gives us clarity. And that is why Brian told us that it literally took several years before our elders brought this new change of leadership before the congregation. And I'm proud to say that it's not perfect, but our highest leadership at Cornerstone is a good example of what sitting together is supposed to look like. An environment where everyone is honored and valued and respected, where collaboration is invited, where no one is shamed for challenging the status quo, where change is possible, expected, and even desired, because that is how it will be in God's eternal kingdom. But in order to pull this off, those at a higher level of authority and power need to dial it down, while those with a lower level of authority and power need to be lifted up. 
And that adjustment all needs to be intentional in order to level the power field, so to speak. Listen to this. Leveling the power field through honor and value and respect is the deeper biblical meaning of sitting together. When Jesus was still alive, he went beyond leveling the field of power, didn't he? When he said in Mark chapter 9, verse 35, and I'll add, he said it while he was sitting down. There's a reason why it's mentioned. It says, sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. And I hope you can see that making the first last and the last first is simply a way of leveling the power field. The Apostle Paul said something similar in Philippians 2.3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. And, of course, this passage goes on uh, to base this, this posture on how Jesus did that for us by sacrificing his very life for us. And this, too, is simply a beautiful way of leveling the power of field, which is exactly what will happen when God and Jesus and all the elect are finally sitting together on the throne. I mean, do you honestly think that God is going to abandon these beautiful upside-down principles once we're in New Jerusalem? That all of a sudden he's a power-hungry God? Or do you think he's going to say that just that, or, you know, that was just for the old world? In the new world, I'm the boss of you? Of course not. God will eternally humble himself. Why? So that we can be lifted up. Or as Revelation 3.21 says, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. And how beautiful this lowering posture will be as we all are seated together on God's throne. So let me just return to Psalm 133 because Psalm 133 gives us an application for today. How good and pleasing it is when brothers and sisters sit together. What's it like? King David goes on to say that it, sitting together in a way levels the power field by honoring and valuing and respecting each other, allowing all voices to be heard, valuing the status quo to be challenged, expecting the change to occur when necessary. We're, this is what we're reading into it, okay? But he says it's like the precious oil, the anointing oil oil poured on the head of Aaron, running down his beard, just an abundance of it. So what is that? That's a blessing. It's an anointing. When we sit together biblically, there's an anointing that is poured out. And then he goes on to say, it's as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. You know, in Israel, they, they, they don't, it's not considered a water-abundant nation. There's not enough water for everyone that lives there. 
But Mount Hermon gets this dew, and sometimes it's, it's so heavy in the morning, it actually runs down into the Jordan River and makes its way to Mount Zion. And so now we're talking about life, anointing and life. When we sit together, there is an anointing, a blessing, and there's life that, that grows from it. You know that the city of Boulder is considered the second most difficult city in America to reach with the gospel. Dozens of church plants have come and gone in the 27 years that I have been here. Many uh, of the more established churches have either closed their doors or have dwindled down in their numbers in Boulder, in the city of Boulder. But as the doors are closing and the numbers are dwindling, just the opposite is happening here. And you can tell from the huge mounds of dirt as you walk around this building that something's happening here. There's a blessing and there's life in this church. And I believe that we are thriving in this city because we have been learning how to sit together biblically in this grand experiment that we have where we have both, what, conservatives and liberals all under one roof trying to figure out how to live civilly together with respect and honor. May that posture extend beyond our walls and into every relationship that you have so that you too may be blessed and have life forevermore. Let's pray. Lord, I think we, we often have this picture of you as in your role as the ultimate authority as just kind of lording it over everything. But that's not you. That's not how you love. That's not how you sacrifice. Thank you for the beautiful pictures that we can see through your son. The way that you want to relate to us when we're with you is the way that Jesus related to us. When that dwelling and your presence is finally here forever, that posture of humility and sacrifice remains forever. Still the ultimate authority. but giving us all a space to collaborate together, to have a voice in the future of eternity even. What a great time that's going to be. Help us now, Lord to live that way now, Lord. To not get caught up in what the world does. To not hold our grip around so many things that are 
distractions from loving others the way you loved others when you walked on this planet. We want your anointing, your blessing. We want life to flow from this church, from our relationships with each other, with the people that we bump into, Lord. How good and pleasing it is to you when we sit together. Amen.